0: Welcome to PwC's Tax Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Readiness Webcast Series held on October 16, 2019, Recession or Not, How Troubled Businesses Will Be Affected by Section 382 Proposed Regulations. The panelists for the webcast were Julie Allen, PwC's National Tax Services Leader, as well as the Washington National Tax M&A Business Unit Leader. Stephen Fleming, PwC's Business Recovery Services Leader, Olivia Orobona, a Director in PwC's Mergers and Acquisitions Practice, and Matt Arndt, a Director in PwC's Mergers and Acquisitions Practice. This excerpt consists of a discussion of the current economic environment and an overview of the proposed regulations. Have a listen.
1: And then the agenda that we'll cover, it is a very fast agenda that we'll go through, but very specific to the environment that we're in today. We're going to be talking about the market environment and looking at the cycles and the fundamentals of looking at the market environment. And then also on the new proposed Section 3D2H regulations, we're going to go through an introduction of those regulations and also a deep dive and really show how, in this current environment that we're in, how those regulations impact companies that are dealing with loss attributes. And woven into this, we will also talk about value and how value impacts our M&A deals. <laughs> and so with that, Steve, will you take us through kind of the lay of the land with respect to the market currently? And one of the questions that I think many people would have for you right now
2: is recession or no recession? Sure. Thanks for the introduction, Julie. Um, there's a lots of opinions and lots of point of views in terms of whether a recession is imminent or whether this bull market is going to continue. Um, I'd be remiss to not point out as a turnaround and restructuring guy, perhaps my crystal ball is not as, as rosy as others. Um, having said that, it's probably good to ground this conversation in the facts. And the facts are, are pretty compelling in some instances. Let's start with where we're at in our current economic cycle. We've just entered our 125th consecutive month of economic expansion, which is the longest continued economic expansion in American history. So you know, with, with that backdrop, there are some conflicting data in terms of what to expect as we look out over the next six or 12 months. You know, let's, let's start with a few of the key measures that are more in the corner of the bulls. Uh, and that, um, I would say, unemployment is probably where I would suggest we start. Our unemployment rate uh, has been at or below 4% for 19 consecutive months. Uh, and In fact, um, it's currently at a 50-year low. The last time unemployment reached these levels was in May of 1969. And, and the relevance of that is that uh, with such low unemployment rates, that really fuels Consumer confidence, which uh, fuels consumption. The second point I'd like to highlight is our interest rate environment. It's no secret that rates have been uh, at historic lows for an extended period of time. They continue uh, to be at lows, which provides access to really cheap capital to borrowers to continue to fuel uh, investments in in the economy. Now, um, you know, not all is is rosy, and there are some signals that are starting to flash, perhaps the one that's talked about the most is the so-called inverted yield curve. Um, What the inverted yield curve is, is when the yield on the three-year treasury falls below the yield of the 10-year treasury. And we're about three months in where we're uh, we're in an inverted yield curve environment. And I'll say that that's been a pretty accurate predictor of the last seven recessionary cycles. I talked a little bit about consumer confidence and while consumer confidence remains strong as some of the September data starts to trickle in, again there are some kinks in in the armor. In fact, I was reviewing some statistics this morning about September uh, sales data and um, September sales data fell unexpectedly below forecast and there was actually a contraction of about one percent and that compares to the comparable period last year four uh, percent. In fact, if we look at some consumption statistics for Q2 of 2019 on an annualized basis, uh, consumption was growing at almost five percent uh, and that's uh, forecasted to fall below two percent in third quarter. So there are some signs that um, not everything perhaps is as, as rosy. Uh, a few other points to touch on, um, you know, the global economic slowdown, the ongoing trade war uh, between the U.S. and China, and some you know, some of the international unrest we're starting to see most recently in, in Hong Kong, but also across the Middle East, that creates an element of uncertainty that, um, that the markets generally don't like, and, and it does tend to impact uh, consumer confidence. On that point, though, if I do look at the stock market as a, as a barometer, as we sit here today, the S&P 500 is up 20%. On a year-to-date basis so there's a lot of mixed views out there in 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 terms of where things are headed um you know we talk about the situation here at home our domestic political environment for those of you that watched the debate last night i i personally found it interesting there were a number of really high profile candidates any one of which could easily get the nod for the the democratic ticket for for the presidential election next fall Uh, and some of those candidates have some pretty um, un, unconventional or, or draconian views on big business, on Wall Street, and on social and, and economic policies that could have a material impact on, on the economy and its, and its future performance. So there's a lot of uncertainty out there. You know, I mentioned my crystal ball and I'd, I'll leave everybody with, with a Game of, of, of Thrones reference in terms of how I think about things. Uh, simply, winter is coming. Uh, i can 't sit here and tell you what month that's going to come, but I think now's the time we should all be preparing for it.
1: thanks, Steve. I love the <laughs> reference, and so that set the bar for the rest of us on the uh, on the the phrases right with that, Steve, I think you did a very great job overviewing the market and kind of the economy and what we 're seeing in some of the trends and the uncertainty, not only close to home but globally It, it is interesting. I think you have some who think we 're going to hit a downturn and some who think we don't right but Whether you think we are or not, the discussion that I've had with clients is it's a perfect time to look at debt levels, to analyze where your company's at, and to really continue to think about where you're positioned if we do hit the downturn. So with that, Olivia, maybe we'll jump to these new proposed regulations that are getting a lot of hype with respect to troubled companies. Will you take us through kind of a general introduction to those rules?
3: Sure. So, I mean, we heard Steve mention uh, maybe we're headed, there's signs, there's signals, there's things flashing that we may be headed into a recession. And oftentimes when I think of the word recession, I think about attributes in my area of of work. And so tax attributes happens to be um, the key driver in this discussion and what we're talking about today, which happens to be Section 382. And just so we're level setting everyone, I just want to set the backdrop for what Section 382 is. And this provision is a provision that tells us that if a company has loss attributes, for example, net operating losses, general business credit carry forwards, AMT credits, 163J carry forwards, if they have those types of attributes and they undergo an ownership change, which just means a change of control, then that company's ability to use its losses or tax attributes is going to be limited. And what is it going to be limited by? Well, the base limit for these companies will just merely be its equity value times a long-term tax-exempt rate which is hovering at a very low percentage, maybe around 2% today. Then what we would often think about is, well, companies think about, well, how can I increase that 382 limitation, that base limit? And there are rules in Notice 2003-65, which set forth methods for taxpayers to identify what are built-in gain items, which will increase a company's ability to use, utilize its net operating losses, and then what are built-in loss items, which are items triggered after the change that are now going to be subject to limitation under these three-day-two rules. And so the IRS issued this notice 2003-65, which set forth the state harbors to identifying these items. Um, and these two approaches are two approaches that exist today that taxpayers can rely on, and most taxpayers do. And what we're talking about for in the proposed regulations is a modification, really an elimination of Notice 2003-65. And what these proposed regulations get into is they basically tell taxpayers that taxpayers are no longer able to pick the two approaches, the 1374 approach or the 338 approach. And so these proposed regs will say taxpayers, you need to rely on the 1374 approach in identifying sort of your items of recognized built-in gain and recognized built-in loss and this 1374 approach which is provided for in the proposed regs is a modified version of what's in notice 2003-65 and we'll go through in detail sort of the significant items or things that are driven in as to what these proposed regulations implement And the first thing that the proposed regulations change is they change the computation for new big, new bill. And so the proposed regulations change this concept in in saying how you come up with whether your company is in a net unrealized built-in gain position or a net unrealized built-in loss position. And so companies that are sitting in a net unrealized built-in gain position under the statutory code are permitted to increase their 382 limitation by recognized built-in gains, which are items that are triggered off within a five-year period after the ownership change. Companies sitting in a new bill position are companies and that trigger off our bill items, which are recognized built-in loss items, triggered off after the five-year recognition period. Those deduction items and loss items would be now subject to a 382 limitation. So everything turns on First, identifying whether a company is in a new big or new build position. The proposed regulations modify what's existing in Notice 2003-65. And what they do is they say taxpayers first determine what the fair market value of your assets are. And you take that and you satisfy non-recourse liabilities. Then they say take your remaining assets and treat it as, a, as if you sold it to a third-party buyer. And then take that amount and subtract your tax basis and assets, minus your deductible liabilities, increased or decreased by 481 adjustments, and then also increased or decreased amounts that are treated as RBIG or bill, And that will determine if you end up in a positive position, your net unrealized built-in gain number, and if you end up in a negative position, your new bill number. And so these proposed regulations are effective when finalized but there is a provision in there right now that tells taxpayers that they can rely on these rules if they elect to apply them today. I am not aware of any taxpayer that has, you know, said that they want to elect into these proposed regulations as we'll get into Later, we'll see that these proposed regulations for companies in a net unrealized built-in gain position and net unrealized built-in loss position seem to get the worst of two worlds. So it seems that these new proposed regs would take the two approaches provided in Notice 2003-65 and take sort of the most restrictive reading of each of those to give the worst result.
1: And so, Olivia, if these are prospective, Should taxpayers be concerned about this effective date
3: of the regulations? Absolutely. Um, There are many clients out there that have sort of already signed up a deal, so they price their consideration based on values that they've sort of attributed to the attributes. And what's going to happen is for a host of reasons, we know transactions may not close as quickly, whether it be regulatory hurdles or whatever dimensions you need to jump through to get the deal closed. And what happens if these proposed regulations finalize at a time when the deal's already signed? Well, there's no recourse for these types of taxpayers. And You know, advisors everywhere are commenting and urging, you know, Treasury and the IRS to look at grandfathering those types of transactions where before these regulations were promulgated, that, you know, deals signed up before should be grandfathered and not subject to these restrictive proposed regulations.
1: Yeah, that's a great point and a great heads up for those who have currently signed a deal, right? Because you always look at proposed regulations and think, well, if they're prospective, They don't really have an impact on anything that's currently out there. So great heads up for those who do have signed deals. As Steve went through the economic environment and where we're sitting currently, you can see that these new proposed regs coming into place, as Olivia mentioned, it has a big impact on companies who are sitting there with loss attributes and thinking or or maybe looking at their deals or looking at how they could have used those and that the lay of land might be changing a bit for that. Again, as we said, they are proposed, and there are a lot of comments that are coming in with respect to those regulations, so we, we hope to see maybe a bit of a change in that area. So maybe with that, Steve, in Olivia's introduction, she talked a lot about these proposed regulations, and one of the things that they key off of is a calculation of value. So will you, you know, pull us to a more global level or larger level of how does value impact M&A Deals and transactions, and just maybe some key drivers that we need to consider when we're when we have a reg package that's so focused on value.
2: Sure. So let's start with the premise that these proposed regs will reduce the value of the tax attributes, which will reduce the value of uh, companies that that have these tax attributes. So overall, deal consideration will be lower. Um, you know, there are some obvious uh, implications there in terms of you know, the, the realized value that, that, that a sponsor um, might might be able to uh, ascertain in an M&A transaction. It may potentially make it harder for private equity funds to exit their investment. Uh, it may make it potentially harder for uh, these, these companies that are generating losses to access the equity capital markets, and in particular, um, when I think about it from M&A, M&A perspective, if the value of the tax attributes uh, is not as a significant part of the consideration of the deal, for companies that are more in the development stage of their life cycle and they've been generating losses and maybe they're not even cash flow positive yet, um, my view is that the you know, stock transactions will probably become less common because you know one of the benefits of doing the stock transaction is being able to uh, preserve some some portion of. Those tax attributes that would have value to the buyer, uh, the cost of that is, you know, one extended due diligence, two, not being able to cherry pick the assets from from the seller that y- you <coughs> may be most interested in, and then, you know, three, the potential for, um, you know, contingent or unknown liabilities rearing their ugly head down the future when you're when you're acquiring a stack a stock as opposed to an asset. Um, as I think about Asset sales for again these, these early stage development stage companies that are that are distressed those are difficult deals to consummate outside of what's commonly referred to as a 363 sale um, a 363 sale that is a uh, section of the bankruptcy code that allows for a buyer to sell its assets free and clear of liens and encumbrances. Um, and it's, it's really the corporate finance tool of choice in, in my experience for effectuating transactions that are um, a distressed seller and primarily asset focused for all the reasons that I just articulated. They're very quick. Uh, the buyer has the benefit of, of being able to cherry pick the assets that they, that they don't want or that they do want, uh, and more importantly, they leave the liabilities behind. Um, another benefit of, of a 363 sale is that it mitigates what's referred to as fraudulent conveyance risk, and fraudulent a fraudulent conveyance is when uh, a seller uh, um, is insolvent and they, they sell assets to a buyer. If the seller ends up in a bankruptcy proceeding, that transaction could potentially be unwound, and the the buyer would have to give the assets back and would we'll be left holding simply a general unsecured claim in, in the bankruptcy proceeding. So as I take all this in and think about you know the impact that it would have on, on some of these companies in, in their development stage, I would anticipate an uptick of, of bankruptcy filings and M&A transactions that are consummated as a 363 sale.
1: So, Steve, that's interesting that you talked a lot about 363 sales and seeing an uptick in those. Olivia, Can you put that in the context of the proposed regs and maybe some industries that you might see affected by these proposed regs? Who might consider the three hundred and sixty-three? Yes, absolutely.
3: Like one of the key items that these proposed regulations change is what is commonly referred to as the. 338 approach, wasting asset approach, and what that approach says is that a company doesn't have to, sitting in a net unrealized built-in gain position that wants to increase its ability to use its attributes, does not actually have to dispose of and sell and recognize a built-in gain in its assets to drive up their ability to use their losses. Instead, the government in 2003-65 gave taxpayers a windfall and said, Hey, you know, we'll let you sort of use this method, which is deem you to sell your asset at fair market value on your change in control date, take that stepped up fair market value and amortize amortizable assets such as IP, goodwill, and compare that to the company's actual amortization for those assets. Often companies have zero basis in their goodwill. And what that really means is that these taxpayers with significant built-in gain assets in IP and goodwill were benefiting from goosing up their base limit 382 limitation. And so when you speak about companies that are going to be highly impacted if these regulations go final, I often think of pharma companies and tech companies.
2: That's an interesting observation because as I sit here and reflect upon that, there have been there's been a lot of distressed activity, particularly in, in the pharma life sciences space, and not all of that is, is driven by the, the opioid crisis. Um, and, and it's a sector that, you know, if I look back three, five, ten years, you know, one would question, why now? Why, why do you see an uptick in, in distressed activity? And, and the reason for that is a lot of um, pharma life sciences companies did IPOs about five years ago and you know, they're still in their development stage. They may only have a couple of products that they've invested very heavily in to develop this IP. They haven't yet figured out how to make a profit off of it. Um, a lot of those transactions, I've seen a lot of transactions consummated out of court. Um, there have been an uptick in bankruptcy filings, but I've, as I think about the implication of these regulations, that's one uh, industry in particular where I, I think Um, those deals that were being done outside of court will likely be effectuated as a 363 sale.
1: It's interesting the impact that just one set of regulations that for many years we thought functioned in a certain way and really just focused on NOLs or those attributes that were going to be limited. It's interesting the impact that they have going clear into the market and then like you said, whether, whether one of these transactions is handled in court or outside of court. Thank you both. That's interesting perspective on that. Stephen, Olivia, right to this point, any other insight that you would add with with respect to the economy, with respect to just a general point on these proposed rules? I know we're going to get into them in more detail, but any other insight you'd add for companies who are sitting there with losses or credits that could be limited that they should consider?
3: Um, I, I'll just chime in. I said, uh, you know, there was a group of folks that said, well, we're not contemplating any transactions currently. Um, but I, the, the one point I do want to drive home is even if you were a company that had attributes and you had experienced an ownership change under the favorable laws today, if for some reason down the road you go through another change, for whatever the reasons are, that there's a rule that says that subsequent limitation, if it's lower, i.e. if these proposed regulations go final... That lower limit is going to govern whatever higher limit you thought you had projected out earlier on from your earlier change. So I, I just want people to be mindful that it isn't just going to impact deals going forward. It could have the potential to go back and restrict your attributes way before you even thought they could come into play.
2: I, I would just say as, as a general comment in terms of you know, navigating a downturn and, and positioning a, a, a company, I would say the earlier that you react to some of the, the warning signals, um, the better, the more optionality you preserve, and the better outcome you're going to have. Whether or not that results in a transaction in, in or out of court, I think those principles hold true.
1: It's a great point.
0: Thank you for listening to this Tax Readiness Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this podcast, please contact the speakers. You can find their contact information in the description of this episode. Thank you.